Welcome to the Swamplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Brittany Lombos. I'm James Cohn. And I'm Hannah Rassinen. And it's time to file your fucking taxes. <laughs> That's right. If you're listening to this, it's too late. <laughs> yeah, they're coming for you. <laughs> you better do Barbara. it today or yesterday. Was it the 15th? Is that the... No, it's the 18th. The 18th. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Like, according to my schedule, I should have this edited in time for tax day. Yeah. But, you know, we are recording this also at the tail end of French Quarter Fest. Right. And it was a fucking yeah. beautiful day outside. Uh. Like, objectively, the most perfect weather to fest in the French Quarter. Right. The whole weekend, minus the middle of yesterday, was just like all good mm-hmm. French Quarter Fest weather. And even ye- yesterday wasn't good French Quarter Fest weather, but it was good, like, reacclimatizing, like getting oh the God. temperature down. And, like, we were yeah. watching some movies. It was raining. It was gorgeous. People could have a magical moment ducking into a bar. That's right. Having <gasps> a drunken smooch, you know, before you head back out there. <laughs> That's right. I did pile onto a streetcar today, which has been crowded. It probably (laughs) smells so bad. It's like Jazz Fest has exploded all over the city. It's the same types of people, but there's like eight times as much of them for some reason. They all have a chair. It was crazy too on that 45 minute streetcar ride I had, (laughs) which is insane. I heard like three different foreign languages. I'm like, wow, people really do come from like all over. It's cheaper Jazz Fest. Yeah, Yeah. because most of it's free. Like majority of the venues. Yeah. And it's spread out across a 14 block radius instead of like all on the fairgrounds. Yeah. So it's like, it's easier to breathe out there once you walk about. But I piled on the streetcar this morning. Everyone's crowded in a festive mood. Sun's shining outside. It's Mm. gorgeous. And I went to Britannia Theater and sat alone in a <laughs> dark room and watched an anime film. Uh, Amazing. I watched the new uh, Makoto Shinkai who did Your Name, which is yeah. uh, that teen romance with like a body swapping time travel element to it. I don't know if y'all remember that movie. Yeah. Two years oh, ago. for sure. Vaguely. It's one of the better like animes of the 2010s, yeah. 2020s. Yeah, I really liked it. Very sweet. And uh, his new one is out. And it's his third movie in a row where he's basically made the same story over and over and over again. <laughs> I guess his one before your name was called like five millimeters per second or something like that. And that, that one's like mm-hmm. kind of the same thing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one, Suzu May, uh, this girl takes a train ride from her rural town to the big city mm-hmm. uh, and falls in love across supernatural means with this like beautiful boy and stops or deals with large-scale urban disaster, mm-hmm. which is very similar to your name and uh, Weathering, Weathering With, with you. you was yeah. the one that came after. Uh, in this one, the boy is transformed into a chair. Uh, <laughs> and he is a talking chair that walks around <laughs> beside her, um, which for a teen girl, I feel like helps with the romance. Like it kind of makes it less dangerous for her to like be like flirting with this inanimate object that becomes animate. Because the first time she sees him, he's this gorgeous, like, long-haired, like, hunk. And then he gets uh, turned into a chair, and it's like, well, I can deal with that, you know? <laughs> it's a lot less threatening. Um, there's also a talking cat that joins her on her adventures, and the talking cat is a god that is supposed to be guarding these doorways to the afterlife that, when they're open and unlocked, can let in these natural disasters. The movie deals with a lot of earthquakes and resulting tsunamis mm-hmm. um, and very explicitly towards the end ties it all together to the uh, March 11th tsunami. I think that was in the 2010s that like really devastated Japan. Yeah. So, you know, big teen emotions, big romance, big supernatural events. 
all tied together to these like real world tragedies uh, in these like urban spaces and a lot, a lot of like a uh, difference between urban and rural life in like modern Japan. Yeah. He's done this so many times in a row <laughs> and it's like starting to rem- remind me of Wes Anderson where he's just like doubling, tripling down on the same thing over and over again. And it's like, well, I'm not surprised anymore, but like every single time I go see one of these, they're gorgeous works of art. Yeah. And like in the moment I feel the like big teen emotions. I, I see the images you're achieving and like no one else is operating on that level so it's like you're not really pushing yourself right. but uh i'm having a great time yeah i like this thing i like the last thing and i'll watch the next thing yeah my, my third bowl of ice cream was no less great than my first <laughs> bowl of ice cream yeah. yeah i have been enjoying going down to Britannia, um downtown you know last episode we talked about overlook festival was there and uh a few days after that i went to see ennis main the new mark jenkin film uh his first one never actually arrived here but like uh, this one is his like folk horror breakout that's like Ugh. starting to bring his like older work to the United States. And in a row, we just did a slow cinema episode where we talked about John Dealman. And then we did a Overlook episode that was about like what's new in horror. And then a few days later, I went to Britannia uh, at the Canal Place and saw those two ideas smashed together Ugh. in like the most perfect timing. We're like... This is a movie about this woman on a Cornish island, uh, and she's just doing daily records of these flowers on a cliffside, and she's just cataloging little to no change in her environment and these flowers that she's like volunteering to study scientifically, and she's alone. And then through that Jean Dielman style um, repetition that goes on for a, quite a long time, then she starts to notice the lichen grow on the flowers and the lichen has this hallucinatory effect uh, and just makes her trip really hard. And she becomes the most unreliable narrator possible where like there is psychedelic imagery in the film that I cannot tell you why it is effective or what it means. There's just like not enough information to build a linear narrative off of what happens inside her mind. Mm -hmm. But like going through that trip I know I was the biggest grump on that uh, slow cinema episode where I was complaining about how boring these movies are and like how skeptical I was of like when it's loose and not really efficient. Like, what are we even doing here? But this one, like everything clicked into place. It's all filmed on these like old cameras and made to look ancient. So it, it calls to mind 70s folk horror movies like The Wicker Man. But also it uses that Jean Dielman repetition to make the world very small so that when little changes start to happening, they mean the world. And then it spirals out to, I want to say like one of the more terrifying experiences I've had in the theater in a long time where like, I just got very scared and like unnerved. Yeah. So kind of a similar experience to you. I went to go see this on my birthday at Britannia, which was Thursday, which was also the first day of French quarter fest. So I'm riding the streetcar down there. And again, like it's packed. With people, but I just make a beeline straight for the theater. Nice. <laughs> and I get there, and me and Hannah actually tried to go see this mm-hmm. um, that past Saturday, and the projector was broken. Bummer. And they just like turned us away, and that was the whole reason we went downtown. So we were like, man, this kind of sucks. Not outside the themes of the film, though, because she has this like little generator that runs her house, and when it stops yeah. working, it's like a huge deal. So I get, <laughs> so I get there, and... I get into the theater. I'm the only person in there and they're working on the projector and they're like talking about like, 
you know, the technical side of like, yeah, you got to do this and you got to clean this to get it to where I'm like, oh my God, if I don't get to see this movie again, like I will riot. (laughs) And, uh, but yeah, I was the only one and I saw this as well and seeing it in an empty theater completely alone, this like sound design, like you were talking about the generator. Yeah. Uh, There's large stretches of kind of like quiet and just like sounds of her boot on the dirt. And so, and then you get the loud sound of the generator and it would like shake me out of my seat and it would get like very scary, just like these simple sounds. And it was like pretty, um, I read a review where somebody called it like unknowable. Like my brain was trying to figure out like, this means this, and this is what's going on. And about a little over halfway through the movie, I'm like, no, there's no answer. It's true dream logic. True there's no dream. like A plus B equals C in the movie. Yeah, yeah, and then once I let that go away and I just like, it was like a sensory experience and it was a pretty thrilling, terrifying experience in the theater. About the sound design, I listened to Mark Jenkin on the Screen Slate podcast, did this interview about making the movie. And he said like, right after COVID, he went to a screening room to watch some other film he was working on or like a buddy's picture. And the surround sound of being in a theater again, instead of like watching something on his couch with like the sound bar, he like forgot that sounds could come from like behind you. And he kept looking over his shoulder as if something was wrong in the theater. He kept like shaking him out of like his comfort zone. And he was like, oh, we need to do that when we're making this movie. And like, yeah, in the theater, that like surround sound effect was like used extremely well. but, But it's also like time itself. It's like, the past, the present, the future are kind of all happening at the same time. And so it's like a swirling effect and the sound is coming from all angles. And it's like, it's really hard to articulate what the vibe of this movie, but it's like so special. And yeah, I I don't know. I really loved it. It does have purpose too. Like, I don't want to make it sound like it's just weird for weird sake. I think there is something to it. And I want to read more about like the Cornish side of it. Like, there's a historical aspect that I think... Well, the title is like Stone Island in Cornish. Mm. And like there is this sort of like Stonehenge style, like stone monument they keep like focusing on. And that stone in the movie you hear on the radio, someone mentioned its history, which is like, it's a monument to people who've died at sea. And yeah. like to mm. loved ones who've like been drowned as sailors or like in like flooding disasters. And like... There is a deep history there, kind of like that Suzume movie I was just talking about. Like, there's like a history of like grand scale, like flooding and drowning disasters mm-hmm. that like informs the trauma, even if most of what happens on screen is like in this one woman's head. Well, and also the coal mine, the history of like the coal yeah. miners that worked underground, and there's like a plaque dedicated to the coal miners that lost their lives, and you know, dedicated to the men we lost at sea. So it's just kind of this island that's haunted. Yeah. In different periods of time from like below ground, from the sea, from her own inner trauma that yeah. the movie goes in. So again, this like swirling trauma across all time and space. Pretty trippy, cool it's stuff. My favorite movie I've seen all year, honestly. Yeah. Like, it really I, hit me. I hope that I get a similar feeling if I'm not seeing it in theaters. I'm pretty bummed out that I didn't make myself go and see that. It definitely needs that like atmosphere we had when we watched Sleep Has Her House, where yeah. you just like yeah. completely eliminate distractions, yeah. fully committed, because and- yeah, it takes a good forty minutes before anything really happens in it. 
literally she writes down on this piece of paper no change for every day wow (laughs) like that's a little you know it starts off and and she's like marking like the temperature of the ground Mm -hmm. and it's just like very minuscule but kind of like you were saying with the john dealman no change no change but there is change like there's change happening in every scene yeah it's so very subtle on like a cosmic level and then it gets grand in scale so well, when I left the theater today, I did make myself be social and I walked around in the sunshine <laughs> with like crowds of people. Yeah. We watched opera on Royal Street. That's we did, so which cool. was really cool. <laughs> what an aggressive like art form to put in like that social of a setting where people are like drinking and chatting. You could hear like car stereos passing with like hip hop music and people chat. Yeah. It was like a collaboration. The hip hop beats sounded good under the opera. I could, it I could did. Yeah, I wanted together. someone to get on that drum set and put a backing beat to it well what else have you been watching besides opera and art films <laughs> <laughs> um i watched something that was kind of operatic i guess you could say so easter was recently and uh <laughs> oh sorry i just realized what you're, talk <laughs> Where about. you're going yeah. well so it was easter and i have this really like strong memory of in high school we had a field trip to go see passion of the christ my school as well. Saw it at the theater for that. That is insane. It's insane. Oh, yeah. That is insane. So y'all got a private or public yeah, school? Yeah, I went to Catholic. Roma, which is okay. like a private Catholic school. And like for religion class, they like bust us out to Elmwood Theater to go see Passion. And I have the memory of watching it, but I haven't obviously felt the need to revisit it since. But I figured, well, it's Easter. I should like rewatch Passion of the Christ. Oh, my God. I have the most vivid memory of the school trip where like, uh, Me and my friend Campo, who was on this podcast with us a long time ago, talking about barbed wire and yes, Casablanca. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, we were like laughing at how bad and over the top this movie was, yeah. especially the Satan character. <laughs> I know. Yes. We really like the Satan character. <laughs> yeah, he's character. great. Yeah. And then the house lights come up and we turn around and our classmates are, are weeping, oh, yeah. like passionately like yeah. moved by this yeah. Christian propaganda film. I feel like that should have been against the law or something. <laughs> Like, I went to public school, but I had to take religion class to confirm. I don't even think that... I must have been, like, under the age of 10 when that came out. And I remember, like, they were like, oh, the kids have to go see this. And I was so, like, freaked it's out It's violent. It. Yeah. It, it, it's so, so it's crazy because, like, bloody. me and Hannah also recently uh, watched Jesus Camp. Yeah. Again, I had seen it. But it is that indoctrination. But the history of this movie is crazy, too. Like, the fact that it had this marketing push where schools were busing children to go see it and it made a shit ton of money. So watching it again with like some fresh eyes, first of all, you have to talk about the violence. It is extremely violent. There is an extended scene of Jesus being whooped where the flesh is just being shredded off of his body. And it's like gorier than anything you could see in a torture porn thing it is like really sickeningly yeah. violent it's really sadistic and yeah. the point that it seemed to be serving to me was to like highlight the evil of the jewish community and like they're reveling in his well that's the other thing too is like questions of its anti-semitism well it's directed by one of the most famous anti-semites right yeah his, his father is a very famous <laughs> he had an agenda Holocaust with that. denier and that didn't come to me when i was a kid like i wasn't really reading it that way but the jewish characters the priest and the people in this movie are very stereotypical 
evil Jew. It's pretty hard to ignore. So that's on the negative side of it. I will say I kind of admired aspects of it. I thought like the like weird things that he added in that are not in the Bible, like, like you touched on the Satan character that stuff actually worked for me. I like I don't know. I I was actually entertained by the movie. I don't think it's a bad movie necessary. It's extremely problematic and it's harsh and it's cruel. But like those little flourishes of things that he added in that aren't in the Bible, I thought were like good artistic choices, but it was obviously wrong to bust a bunch of children to go see this thing. So like that is torture in itself. It is All, like, I didn't even understand what was going on. So like, I'm curious to see like, if I would watch this now, I still don't, I've never read the Bible. I don't know anything about it. I don't know if it would make sense to me now, even it should make you feel better that most people who love the Bible have not read the Bible either. Right. Okay. <laughs> They trust other people to tell them what's in the Bible. After the movie, I did ask I Hannah, I was like, it. do you have, you have a copy of the Bible, right? And I wanted to reread like how accurate, you know, cause it's basically taken from the gospel, uh, how accurate the film was. But anyway, it was interesting to revisit it for, <laughs> for Oh my sure. God. I had never I seen it. This. My family was like vaguely Christian for a time. And then basically by the time me and my siblings were like in third or fifth grade we were like i don't believe in god and i went to like a very secular public school in minnesota and it, it was actually a pretty religious town but i had never seen this movie and it was wild and i could not believe that teenagers and children were bust out to see this film and i also just really <laughs> want to highlight the satan character who's this like like hot androgynous goth, oh, he's sexy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and played, played by, by a, a woman, woman too. So like very intentionally androgynous character that I would want to like go and hang out with. And then I don't know, the rest of it is like so deeply heteronormative. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's how the Bible all the sa- is. like the Satan stuff too. With um, where Judas is haunted by the these demon children whose faces morph into like goblins yes like all those like i said all those little things that that. aren't actually in the bible that mel gibson added in are pretty fucking sick elements of the supernatural yeah i liked all that stuff i have a question about this (laughs) until now okay i'm remembering as we're talking about it like not only did we go to the theater but then we went back to my school in the ninth ward and sat on the levee and had like a class we discussion about, about like, the yeah. oh uh, And I was a jackass atheist because I was in high school. So like when they asked like, what did we learn from the movie? I raised my hand. I was like, I learned that Jesus invented the dining room table yes! setup. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. a great. That's did a that great happen? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's <laughs> like, the, yeah, his mother's like, Jesus, this table is so tall. Yeah, he's Mother like, Mary is like, you know. <laughs> That's no insane. one's going to sit at this tall table. And he's, and he's like, like, they'll sit at this. And he pulls out a chair. A chair. Okay. So I did not make that up. No. He it's the chair. He's yes. like yes. that good of a carpenter. Yeah. Right. Incredible. I, <laughs> <laughs> that was I, I did not get blown. good response from that observation, but I, I feel vindicated. <laughs> I was, and I, I don't know. I just felt like I s- saw tables in other scenes. <laughs> and then, I don't know. There was a table good that they put. Yeah. There was a table where they put all of the torture devices on. So I don't yeah. know. I don't think he invented the table. 
Uh, I do also want to note that this is still up to date and like relevant cinema in that SS Rajamoli fucking loves Mel Gibson as a filmmaker. Yeah. And like, I think you could see those whipping scenes even in RRR. I had the thought oh, that yeah. it reminded me of RRR. He's a, a lot. huge fan. And like, yeah. wow. when he did his like sight and sound poll, I want to say there were at least two Mel Gibson movies on the list. I, Not wow. this one, but. I will go to bat for Apocalyptica. I think that was one of the that ones. That movie yeah. is bad at. That. Like, Again, whatever he is as a person, like, I think he's a good filmmaker. I really do. But for what purpose? Yeah, yeah, to what end? For sure. Well, so, so Hannah, what have you been watching? So I actually have a topic that is somewhat related to that film. Very tangentially. So I've been watching some Ernst Lubitsch films. Hell yeah. And he is a Jewish born uh, director from Berlin. Uh, well, he is uh, dead now, obviously. He he was alive a long time ago. But I have been getting more interested in like pre-code films. And he made a film called Trouble in Paradise in 1920. Oh, I'm sorry, 1932. That was, um, I saw on a lot of lists, so I checked it out. And oh my God, I loved this movie. It is so fun. It's about this pair of criminals that meet and fall in love and they have this like adorable meet cute. And then they get involved with this uh, widowed um, owner of this jewelry company. Um, And then they kind of get involved in like a sexy little love triangle. And it is just so like playful and fun and funny. It like... It was made almost a century ago, and I was, like, busting out laughing at these lines. There's this uh, point where this widow is being pursued by two separate men, and she's not interested in either of them, and she is talking to one of them, and she's like, don't be so downhearted, Major. You're not the only man I don't love. It's just like, (laughs) and the whole movie is, like, very playful, very playful with sex. Um, Obviously, they couldn't show it on screen, but it's, like, very clearly happening and nobody is demonized or vilified it was just like just an absolute pleasure to watch and then i watched another film that he made during the period where the code was strictly enforced so it was 1942 and that was to be or not to be which is a comedy about this acting troupe in poland during the Nazi occupation, and they are trying to intercept the spy for the Nazis. And there is another love triangle plot, but it's kind of integral to the spy drama. And it's like, it's set up in the beginning as this like playful plot point. And then the acting troupe is totally interrupted by the invasion by the Nazis. And it's like this playful social comedy has to go underground just like this acting troupe until they can kind of like thwart this plot to reveal the Polish underground and like escape from Poland and it's there's still sex and the lead actress uh, Carol Lombard is like seducing all of these Nazis it has to be much more subversive because it was made during the period of the code enforcement, but it still has this like really playful attitude. And it's also like commenting on the use of comedy as 
like an antidote to authoritarianism and fascism. And it's just like, oh my gosh, it was so fun. So I am just a huge Ernst Lubitsch fan now. And I am like totally down to watch all of his movies. And he was like absolutely hated by Hitler, apparently, because he was this very successful Jew from Berlin. And he's actually featured in this propaganda film called The Eternal Jew. Um, He's like presented as like the face of corruption. But yeah, anyway, it's they're like these really fun, sparkling like sex comedies. Uh, and I don't know. I, I really recommend <laughs> I didn't them. I know that any of this existed. I, yeah. I like so anyone cool. that's hated by Hitler. <laughs> well, a lot of like yeah. old Hollywood greats, like the whole reason we have like the universal horror stuff was like all these expatriates. I think even mm-hmm. Douglas Sirk, mm-hmm. like basically was escaping the war. Right. Yeah. I do get a little wary with like praising too much like code era subversion. Because uh-huh. a lot of people are like, you know. Hollywood has just gotten more and more vulgar. Right. And like, uh, you know, things used to be more demure and like, uh, you know, under the surface. And it was sexier back then. It's like, actually, that was like really harsh uh, censorship. Right. And it's like, before that happened, you know, you had stuff like Babyface, which was like so vulgar and like in your face with its sexuality. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think the thing that I admire about the films that were made during the code enforcement is... I mean, it is impressive what they got past yeah, censors. Yeah. But the thing that I love about it is that, like, like people have always loved sex and loved talking about sex exactly. and loved having sex. And, like, yeah. even, like, no matter what, people will want to make movies about this and they will find a way to do it. That is the thing that is really compelling to me. But I also love when people don't have the restrictions that they had and can just like make a balls to the walls like sex comedy yeah it it just fills me with joy for the human spirit i I haven't seen lubitsch yet i should Mm -hmm. dive into that for sure but um i really love the thin man series Mm -hmm. uh which is just these like married detectives who solve crimes and are absurdly drunk on martinis (laughs) And, like, every line out of their mouths, they're, like, negging each other, but they're so in love with each other, and it's all sex jokes that, like, somehow got past the hate censors, because, like, the jokes are too well-written for them to be completely, like, knocked off the script. Yeah. Uh, And it's just, like, such sharp, subversive writing. So, yeah, the restriction, like, did give birth to great art. Yeah. But, like, at the same time, it's like, yeah, but it's better that we don't have that yeah, anymore. Yeah, exactly. I love that you don't have to worry about it. Because you can still make those films, you know, you can still make films that talk about sex in a subtle way. But I love, like, everything on the spectrum. Uh, Brittany, what have you been watching? Oh, I've... Been watching some new stuff and some old stuff that has been blowing my mind. I recently saw the new John Wick movie, Chapter 4. It's so good. It was like, I don't know, I want to say it was over three hours for sure. Really? Wow. It was originally like four hours. The lore has gotten out of control from the first (laughs) one. I haven't seen two or three, but like watching the trailer for four, I was like, what is happening exactly? (laughs) The way that... I kind of felt about it is like from the magic Mike series, like the first movie it's taking itself seriously in a way. And then the second one, it's just a parody of what this movie embodies. And that's kind of how it felt with this one. It knows how ridiculous it is, but it doesn't 
just rely on that. Like there is, I didn't, I was trying to count all the deaths. Couldn't keep up. <laughs> but like all the like badass martial arts in this movie fucking blew me away. A lot of it takes place in like Osaka, Japan. And so there's like a lot of really cool like swordsmanship and I don't know, just like badassery throughout. And there's still like in every movie, like a dog plays like a really integral role in it. And there's a different dog in this movie that is not like John Wick's dog. I don't want to spoil anything, but I don't know. I loved what the dog brought to this one. <laughs> and I think so Keanu Reeves, um, someone did their research. It wasn't me. He has like 380 words that said throughout this entire movie. Like he barely talks. Yeah. I think he personally edited out lines of dialogue from the script uh. to like make it so that he said less. <laughs> but it's the way he says stuff like, no, not really. <laughs> like that'll be his line Keanu is that you there and there's this one the the last scene I could not stop laughing I was screaming but he's basically he has to get somewhere in time there's there's a duel afoot that is like pulling everything this movie is all about together it takes place in Paris in front of the Sacre Coeur and if you've ever been there there is like I mean hundreds of steps you have to climb and there are people who are trying to kill him before he gets there. So he keeps falling down these steps. Uh, and then he has to go back up. Yes. And it is nice. so good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was surprised. Like, it wasn't a packed theater. But, like, I was laughing so hard at everything. And everyone was just kind of like, mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> until like stuff uh, that yeah. was like in your face funny came right. on then they like chuck a little bit but i'm like is not is anyone not right. seeing what they're trying to do here <laughs> it's so good i would watch it again and again and again i like love the john wick movies are so good so badass and um oh yeah one other quick thing with this one there is a scene and i swear to god it lasts for like five minutes but it's one of the most beautiful things i've ever seen in cinema it is this neon scene at the Continental in Osaka. And they're like the, it's at night and there's just like neon lights. And then John Wick staring and the wind blowing. And then like these cherry blossoms all around him. Mm. And it's so good. Mm. And you just like, you're forced to look at it for a really long time. And oh, sounds very Lady Snowblood. Lady Snowblood. Yes. Yeah. I was about to say. Yes. Yeah. And there's um, a female actor who made her acting debut. Her name is Rina Sawayama. Oh, yeah. I've listened to her music. Yes, she's mm-hmm. a musician. Yeah. She is so good in here. Oh, cool. And I think that, like, there's word on the street is there's going to be, like, a spinoff called, like, The Continental, and she's going to be involved with oh, it. Oh, cool. Because, like, her, her role in here, like, fucking blew me away. And the fact that, like, this, like, this woman has, like, not acted in a shit ton of stuff before. Like, what the fuck? Like, she's, she's, she rocks. Um, but yeah, so, um, it's, you're basically going to every fucking country in the world in this movie. Like one <laughs> second you're like in Berlin at like some underground club and everyone's dancing. And then there's like everyone getting murdered I, while they're dancing. And then you're in Japan and then you're like in Saudi Arabia. It's wild. I, I love that with all these like action franchises, whether uh-huh. it's like the born series <laughs> or like mission impossible, where yeah. it's just an excuse for them to travel. <laughs> To exotic locations and yeah. do like big budget Fast and Furious set is going to every yeah, Fast yeah. And oh, I'm so excited for the new Fast and Furious Very cool. movie yeah it's awesome um, so another movie I watched 
is The Women from 1939. Love that movie. Okay. Classic. It's like immediately like an all-time favorite. Fuck yes. Nice. I didn't like, I don't know what made me want to watch it. I've, oh yeah. I've been Joan like Crawford. really diving into Joan Crawford's Fuck life. yes. And I, I love like, everything you're saying. You yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, agree, I need to I agree, share I something with you later with Joan Crawford. But me and my mom watched it for Easter like really late at night and Much i'm like better easter movie than passion <laughs> of the christ, christ. <laughs> this movie it was if there was a real housewives in 1939 it would be this movie and joan crawford's in it and like rosalind russell like powerhouse all female cast including the dog yes <laughs> No man in the movie. And like this movie gets slightly shit on by critics because it's like, yeah, but like there's no feminist ideals. I don't care. Okay. <laughs> I don't we don't need it. Like so <laughs> the main character, she's like married and her husband, as they say in 1939, he's stepping out on her Uh-oh. with the girl at the perfume counter at Saks Fifth Avenue, who was Joan Crawford. So her husband's having an affair and her friends like, no, because they're they're all like big gossipers. And they're like, it'd be horrible if she found out. It'd be ghastly. (laughs) And they like set her up with like a gossipy nail salon woman who like tells everyone's business to everyone. They're like, oh, you should really get your nails done. Jungle Red's the hot color. She does it. Like, purposely, so she goes and gets her mm-hmm. nails done by this woman who reveals, like, yeah, someone says cheating on his wife. And she's like, I am the wife. Good shit. So, I don't know. They're all so catty, but it's so good. And um, Joan Crawford is, like, young in here, but she's still... She will always be the same character. Yeah, she's a little hard and cold, even though she's like a 20-something like upstart oh, in this. Cool. There is this bathtub scene that I like rewatched 20 times with Joan Crawford. She's in the, this like ridiculous bathroom with a clear tub that's like gilded in gold, in these bubbles, smoking a cigarette, talking on the phone to like the man that she is cheating on her new husband that she on his wife with so good <laughs> and she's like flicks her cigarette in the bathtub and then her stepdaughter comes in and she's like sit down like she's <laughs> like this like mean stepmother it's so good <laughs> oh and there's also like they all go to a ranch in reno it's like a a spa ranch for like rich women rodeo it's, women rodeo women <laughs> it's so good it's kind of incredible like with that cast that like this movie probably fails the bechdel test all they talk about <laughs> is men but like they're trading men like they're trading like poker chips it's like this yes. like power game or like the husbands mm. are these like uh maneuvers mm. they're making on a chessboard. Cool. yes yeah and like <laughs> when she goes so whenever she tells her mom she's like mom he's cheating on me she goes uh, they all do. Yeah. You just have to deal with it. You have to like rise above that and use that as like a power move. Right. Yeah. It's so, it's it's just great. It blew my mind. Okay. Big centerpiece of the film though. Yeah. Much like the red shoes when it breaks into this like mm-hmm. um, ballet fantasy for like 20 minutes in the middle. Oh, it's yeah. in, it's okay. in color. So like most of the movie is in black and white and in this like shopping mall and sometimes on this ranch and there's like a spa setting. Uh, so you get very used to these like commercial spaces, but they're very like limited. And yeah. then the movie bursts into color like fucking <laughs> Wizard of Oz. And there's like just a 20 minute fashion show. Yes. <laughs> and it's like in Miss Harris Goes to Paris yes. where it's like these women are waiting and watching. And you're like, I want number 10. Yes. <laughs> I remember watching the fashion show and thinking like most of these looks are awful, but this is the best oh, I version of, all of cinema them. I've ever seen. Like 
this is fantasy yeah perfected yeah oh man i'm so glad that you like i i knew you would probably like this movie so this <laughs> this makes sense but all-time fave and already Agreed. i've watched it like three times i'm like <laughs> i've ordered the dvd i am on board for the women <laughs> Everybody watch the women. For the women. Not my favorite Joan Crawford movie, but like the top 10 Joan Crawford movies are still like oh, among yeah. the top 100 movies ever made. <laughs> yeah. What is your favorite Joan Crawford? Baby Jane's high up there. My favorite might be one we watched for the show together. Straight Jacket? Straight Jacket. I was going to, I think it's my favorite. Straight Jacket. To be incredible. honest. Mm. Yeah. She's an axe wielding maniac in that movie, and it's so good. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's it. Well,. We have to come down from this reverie and do our fucking taxes. <laughs> and do our fucking taxes. 1040 40, baby. This won't be very dry. I feel like even the worst among these movies aren't mundane. Like these no. movies try to make high fantasy cinema out of doing your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of like soaring hearts romance in here. A lot mm-hmm. of like playful cinema filmmaking, even though it's a very bureaucratic topic. We are going to be talking about four movies that really go into tax audits. Yeah. And like what happens when you don't do your taxes correctly? That's right. Bad things happen. <laughs> Unless you're a corporate entity and then great things happen that's to right. your bank accounts. Yeah. You save a lot, a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> and all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. Let's face it. We're all guilty of a little procrastination now and then, but even more so when it comes to filing our taxes. In fact, one recent study shows a third of all Americans Wait until the last minute. If you're one of those people, you'll want to watch closely. Uh, so this is my topic. I have no justification for this topic. It's tax day. Yeah, it's it tax is ta- day. It is tax day. Yeah, um, thank you for there reminding me. There was a period. Me. So my dad recommended the film that I picked maybe one or two years ago when I told him that I was on a movie podcast. And at that same time, I was watching a lot of tax related films like i had seen strawberry mansion i think that was around the time that i saw exotica for the first time everything everywhere was also yeah last year i just felt like these auditor movies are giving me something and i want to explore that so then i forced everybody to come on that journey with me because it is tax week and this is really the only time that makes sense to do it um and then beyond that i mean i think The idea of a tax auditor is interesting. It's like almost a like a joke of a boring job. Um, (laughs) It's bureaucratic. People hate the IRS. They hate tax collectors. But there are elements of danger, at least like in the past, there used to be real dangers associated with tax collecting. So one of my favorite tax facts is that the Doberman Pinscher was bred by a tax collector. What? Um, because he wanted a dog that he could bring with him for protection <laughs> when he was like going through these shady neighborhoods and they're like very intimidating looking. So I just am kind of like fascinated by this very boring job that is intended to deliver some semblance of equity across like socioeconomic classes and as we'll find that power is not levied equally and there are many ways to um evade taxes uh but i don't know it's like uh there is a little bit of glamour to the auditor um so the film that i picked is a taxing woman which was directed in 1987 
by um, Juzo Itami, who also directed Tom Popo. One of the greats. So fucking good. I love that movie. Also stars the two lead actors from Tom Popo as the two primary characters in this film. So this is about a man named uh, Hideki Gondo, who is this very wealthy man. He, uh, I can't actually, I'm not sure. What is his like overall? He's like an investment of like a real estate. He's a real estate guy, but he has something else. I feel like he started um, as like a brothel owner. Like he's like, oh, that's right. It's the love hotels. But like he's used that to leverage real estate as basically floating bank accounts. Like he's like pushing people out of their homes to hold equity in a non-taxable way. Yeah. Like his actual profession is sure. He owns the sex hotels. Yeah. But like you said, he's using owning these properties and we'll talk about shell companies. Oh, for sure. Yeah. America's perfected the art form. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But using like properties to launder money for gangsters in these intricate schemes to avoid paying taxes. And it seems like the sex motel stuff is actually relatively legal. Yeah. But like earlier, he would have been involved in more just gangster warfare type like Yakuza activity. Yeah, and he has relationships with shady people that he uses for his own financial benefit. I remember one of the quotes early in the film is like, earlier we would have gone to jail for violence. Now we go to jail for For tax tax evasion. evasion. Yeah. So he's kind of like the antagonist of the film. And then the protagonist is this woman tax collector named Ryoko, who's like, she starts off as an auditor in one region, and she's extremely good at her job. She is this small woman with this very severe haircut, and she is uh, no-nonsense. She like really is extremely observant and uh, very dispassionate in her takedowns of like these people that are underreporting their income and, you know, uh, evading their taxes. And she kind of becomes suspicious of Gondo and she starts to investigate him. And it becomes, I think it's clear that he's doing something, but, they're really not able to get any evidence of like what he could be hiding or how he might be performing tax evasion. But he's giving these hints that he knows how to work the system uh, without giving any evidence. So nothing comes of that investigation. She's promoted to a tax inspector and the agency is tipped off again that Gondo is involved in uh, is evading his taxes because he has this like former mistress that he dumped and she's kind of like trying to get one up on him so she tips off the agency that uh, this woman who is his current mistress is like throwing away these um, his earnings documents every morning it's like a mistress slash employee like in goodfellas where like deborah mazar is like measuring the cocaine for the guy like these women are helping launder and like shred evidence and yeah. all kinds of other stuff like right. that. So then they start this investigation in earnest. They have many more resources and some kind of inside information now. And they start to build this uh, case against him to perform a raid. Um, 
the soundtrack in this movie is just absolutely killer. <laughs> There's like this same beeps and boops. Yeah, yeah it's a <laughs> and beep. it's this running kind of motif throughout, and it, it's just, it never gets old. No, it's it's so good, and the two leads have this really interesting relationship like there's this clear respect between the two and they have these moments where they like kind of meet up and drink beer together like there's this sense of like respect and camaraderie amidst like the cat and mouse game of tax evasion they respect each other and like are enjoying it a little bit Mm -hmm. like it's kind of that idea like you know i'm up to some bad stuff let's see if you can figure it out like, who's going to win this game? Also, she's, like, extremely limited in what she can do to, like, nail him to the wall. Yeah. So, like, even when he comes into their office, like, their equivalent of the IRS to, like, intimidate the workers, she has to wait for him to, like, actually mm-hmm. commit an infraction, has to, like, force his hand. Basically, she makes him smash this uh, coffee cup because she salts his coffee. Uh, like, she has to, like, play by the rules in a way that he yeah. doesn't. Uh, so, yeah. like, the cat and mouse game is actually tipped towards his favor because he has no rules to abide by, really. Right. Yeah, it, I couldn't help but think of Trump with this stuff. We're like, he's been getting away with this kind of thing for decades. and He it's never that- pays anybody. Right. <laughs> it's crazy. He doesn't pay anyone. People <laughs> sue the shit out of it. But it's that idea, like, him and his goons know, they know that other people know that they're shady. They've gotten away with it because they know how to play the game. Right. And they're like, well, let's see if you can actually like get some charges to stick, which, you know, with the indictment that just happened, yeah. it's interesting. But I love their dynamic in this film, that cat and mouse thing. Yeah. I was I was trying to find a thread between these films of like how they treat the role of the tax auditor and what that means in the context of the film. And this was probably the version of that that is the most like tax auditing is a like neutral good like it's this balancing force and like it's almost like uh like a superhero that's how i thought of it yeah Yeah. she's like the john wick of taxes right exactly (laughs) which is and it was i don't know i just thought it was so fun and it actually does try to get into the particulars of what is happening and what the schemes are between all of the you know the banks and then his yakuza connections so they treat it they treat it seriously and when all of these agents are like working 24 7 and just like i don't know it feels like a police procedural or something you know i i don't know i just thought it was like it just instilled me with so much hope for this woman yeah it it takes the tax stuff seriously but is very fun like when you think a movie about tax audits like (laughs) it sounds like oh my god it's gonna be boring and bland and this movie is not oh it's incredibly playful it's really playful and fun and it's just a good time (laughs) she is like the Sherlock Holmes of tax inspectors. Yeah. Oh, I love her. Just her as a character with her little bowl cut. And the mm-hmm. freckles. And she and always has freckles. bed head. And she's always yeah. smoking and looking through a seat. Yeah. Although sometimes she's wearing the coolest fucking Ray-Ban sunglasses you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> yeah. I am obsessed with and her play, looks. And, so yeah. great. and playing Mario, you know, like. She that was just, a great pop art yes. moment. Just mm-hmm. super cool. And then I love how this repetitive song shows up in those moments where you know 
the investigations, getting deeper. It's almost like the Scooby-Doo theme song that tacks on as, you know, whenever, yeah. whenever shit gets real. And I, I don't know if they did that purposely for it to be funny, but I found it like super, like super funny. It's like goofball antics yeah, in like the same goofy. way. Yeah. But like, I really do feel the righteous indignation that she feels about yeah, taxes. Totally. Like, in a functional society, everyone should pay their fucking due, especially yeah. these people who especially are making rich people. absurd amounts of money that like the average like working person does not get access to that capital. And like in a functional society, if everyone just paid their percentage, things would work better. Yep. Like public resources would be better funded yeah. and the post office yeah. wouldn't have to like justify itself by selling merchandise to like be a profitable organization. Like, yeah, the world would be such a better place if everyone just paid their fucking taxes. Mm-hmm. I guess like if this movie undershoots that idea a little bit, it's like aiming towards an agreeable target where like these like gangster bullies are not paying their taxes. And it's like, actually, that is true. But like, if you aim a little higher, these corporations that are like above them right. are just as like bullish and you know, well, and because irresponsible. Because what these guys are doing is it's like illegal money, right? The the real question, like you're pointing to, is and we're gonna talk about this a lot, yeah, with some other movies we discuss. But it's like the fact that there are legal loopholes for the corporations that make insane amounts of money to ship money overseas mm-hmm. to put in offshore bank account and avoid paying taxes. We're talking like help hundreds of thousands, maybe low millions versus like billions and trillions of dollars. Right, yeah. Which like, there's a good way of like hiding that and just the, the numbers don't sound that different. But when like you actually look at like the difference between right. that jump in money is like huge. Yeah. And I like that she has this like moral principled core to her politics where she like goes to these places originally when she's like on the lower rungs of these Mm -hmm. uh, organizations where she's like auditing these restaurants that are obviously hiding their money and it's like this like basically mom and pop business that she's auditing right and they're like why are you coming after us there are people way above us that are like cheating way harder we're just trying to make it and she's like point me to them give me evidence tell me where to go and i would gladly you know apply this same scrutiny to a bigger offender right but i don't have the tools and resources to attack that right yeah yeah she's doing her job in the capacity that she can but then she does become curious about i think she she like sees this rolls royce in a couple of different places and she and it's the car of this guy and that piques her interest and when she's having these conversations with these people they're she's like you know point me to them and they're like well that's your job you need to go and find Mm -hmm. them so then eventually it's like she finds this target that's a little too big for her but she's such a good like committed auditor that she's promoted and then she has like the capability to yeah. go to a higher realm that promotion <laughs> yeah i was so, I I was so like, happy yeah. for her and she was like kind of tearing up and her boss was so sweet yeah but like what i really loved about this too is like you know you think about accountants and auditors and bureaucrats is like oh my god this job is so soul crushing and boring like that's usually how most movies betray those jobs. I work a government bureaucratic job. It's yeah. soul crushing and boring. <laughs> but like, like for instance, my dad was an accountant, as his, and he loved accounting. I don't know, getting into the numbers and crunching, whatever. But what I found so admirable about this movie was it's so 
kind of attractive and cool to watch somebody who loves their job. And they're good at it. <laughs> yeah. And they're good at it. Yeah. And they care about it. And they do a show up to work and do a good job. Like that is just cool. Yeah. And I respected the fuck out of the protagonist in this movie. Like, yeah, you got this soul crushing job, whatever, but you love it and you do good work every day. And I admire that. What this reminds me of, and this director is very much a part of this. Um, I'm only saying this based on three movies that I've seen, which I watched this movie. And I also watched a taxing woman's return uh, from the very next year. which as a sequel is basically just the continued adventures of this taxing woman. Like she just tackles a different villain. It's this uh, cult instead of this mm-hmm. yeah. sex hotel thing. Yeah, it's like a religious Yeah, cult. it's like yeah. this, it's like a fake cult that like uses the tax exempt status of religious organizations to evade taxes. Yeah. And um, there's not much change. Like the villain is actually more evil and like that's it. Like mm-hmm. it gets a, little, gets a little darker based on like who she's attacking, but mm-hmm. like, just based on the, these two movies and Tampopo, he feels like he's part of this like Japanese tradition that I don't have a term for. Like, there's no genre term for this, but it's this like kind of free for all multimedia anything goes yeah. filmmaking. Like, House is a movie like this, or uh, Funeral Parade of Roses. Yeah. Uh, more recently, I really like this movie called We Are Little Zombies. It's not about zombies. It's about this like uh, punk band that little kids are in. And it's just like a anything can go from scene to scene. I can pull in any iconography I want. And it's like yeah. trying to excite you at every moment. And like the tension between that like freestyle filmmaking with this like extremely bureaucratic <laughs> yeah. topic yeah. is just so thrilling. And it's like, I don't know. It just like excited me about like what movies can do in a way that it, I haven't felt in a while. It, cool. d- it did re- remind me a lot of like, you know, I was watching some Japanese noir, and I think you watched some of oh, like you watched Brandon to Kill. Yeah, yeah it, absolutely. It, it takes. I think part of that is taking from like the French new wave handheld cinematography. Yeah, and that idea that like kind of anything goes. Like we can be abstract and be fun and playful, and this is a very playful movie. That I don't know. I I really enjoyed this one. I've been wanting <laughs> to see a supermarket woman. Oh, yeah. And That's also him, right? And yeah. she's the main character yeah. in there, too. So I don't know. Like, this kind of, like, opened the door for me a little bit where I'm like, that's always been on my watch list. And I'm like, holy crap. And then I started digging in more. And I'm like, there's a lot of, like, you know, uh, director, actor, like, duos throughout yeah. all these yeah, films. That, that and they wife. all look awesome. What? Oh, really? Cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What? I'm yeah. I think she's in most, if not all of his movies. Yeah. They were yeah. married for <sighs> a long time. Yeah. Had no idea. It's going to sound like uh, an insult, but like he got lucky. Like, like, <laughs> she is so charismatic and yeah. cool and like effortlessly relatable. I fell in love with her. Yeah. yeah. He, he apparently started as an actor and started directing movies later in okay. his career. But yeah, they were married for quite a few years until Ow. he. I forgot I was watching something from the director of Tom Popo until they showed the um, jar. It was like a mason jar full of like egg yolks. Yeah. And I thought, like, oh, yeah, what's that, what's that other movie where like two people keep trading egg yolks mm-hmm. from like mouth to mouth and it's like the filthiest like non-sex <laughs> sex scene you've ever seen. Oh wait, same director. Yeah. And like yeah. this movie is effortlessly vulgar in the same way. Like the gangster is introduced like basically fingering his mistress while yeah. she's on the phone. 
And then, like, they have sex, and she walks away, and he, like, stuffs her, like, crotch with tissues to, yeah. like, to pick up the leaking the very, fluids. I kept thinking about the very first scene in this movie is an old man sucking on yeah. a tit. Yeah. And, like, I kept thinking, like, I don't know if this was the intention at all, but just that idea of, like, old money and, like, men draining the life out of society yeah just like that i kept coming back to that image like that's a very shocking image to start a movie with gross old man <laughs> in a movie about paying your taxes yeah like <laughs> i was like what <laughs> well, all right oh pablo escobar is like a child nursing at its mother's teeth compared to this man. I don't want to be one of those people he visits when he gets out of jail. Maybe it's better if he keeps his house. Keeps oh, his house. Why? What? What? what, what, what? You, you think we know everyone we created a company for? Huh? Did we happen to mention we are in this for the money? Yeah. Are some of our clients criminals? Drug lords? Uh, sex traffickers? Gun runners? Are destroyers of the planet. No, like I said, we would prefer not to know. And remember, before we created a company for them, a lawyer sent them to us. Yeah, and before that, eh, a banker sent them to the lawyer. So, I like Steven Sodenberg. <laughs> not anymore. I, re- I really do. Like, I think he's a very cool director. He directs a lot of movies. They're very diverse. And I've always been kind of fascinated by the Panama Papers, which this movie he directed from 2019 called The Laundromat is about the Panama Papers, which is this big leak that happened, basically uncovering all these financial crimes and all these offshore shell companies that were propped up to bribe lawmakers, to launder drug money, to all sorts of nefarious shit. and. So I was excited. I was like, Steven Soderbergh did a movie about the Panama Papers. Like, this has got to be pretty good. How have I never heard of it? And it's got a lot of stars. It's got, you know, it starts with Antonio Banderas and Gary Oldman, and they play the, you know, fictionalized versions of the two guys who their company was the one that, you know, the Panama Papers, that's what the leak was about. And they're doing this straight to the camera, breaking the fourth wall, like wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing. And they're narrating these vignettes. There's like three different stories that are told throughout this movie. You know, the first one revolves around Meryl Streep and her husband, played by James Cromwell. Again, more famous actors. <laughs> they're at Niagara Falls and their boat tips over and he passes away and she's trying to sue the um the boating company to get insurance money and it turns out that that policy was sold to some other company who sold it to another company who you know and she can't get the money there's another vignette about this african businessman who's trying to bribe his daughter after she finds out about his affair and with she her goes, best friend with her be- best friend and he she goes to like cash in on the shares and it turns out like it has no value because it's been sold to some trust that you know and then the 
third story. <laughs> oh like, my god! Yeah. <laughs> no, the third story is about this uh, guy who's drugged and killed with cyanide by this Chinese businesswoman, and you know. Anyway, so <laughs> I knew within the first five minutes of this movie that it was going to be bad. Like I, it just something clicks at the very beginning. You're like, oh no. There's a word for that something. That's Gary Oldman. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gary Oldman Thank with you. this very bad German accent. Yeah. It's oh. really bad. Antonio Banderas is just being charming. Antonio yeah. Banderas. I very curious wanted but... their characters to go away and they just kept coming back. And I'm like, I hate yes. you all so much. And they, they keep coming this. up and different. Yeah. And it's just talking direct to the viewer about like, you know, this is our side of the story. Like, yeah, I know we got caught, but we were just doing, you know, business as usual. A little piss. And it's kind of doing the Adam McKay, like, big, big short, short thing of, like, dictating the rules about, like, shell companies and tax laws. But in a way that is, I actually liked the big short. I haven't seen it, but I've seen so many knockoffs and they're all bad. Yeah. So like everyone's learned the wrong right. lessons of that movie winning an Oscar. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it was no good. The big short, I felt like afterwards I kind of learned something about how these schemes work. And the tone of this one seemed to be more like, this shit is so complicated. You're never going to understand it. Yeah. Like they keep throwing out all this terminology without really explaining how it works about trust and shell companies and without really getting into the details about what this scheme was. So you're left without feeling like you learned anything. It felt lazy. Like this was such a lazy movie. And you're being like patronized and preached to. And the political message is very in your face, which, and it's one that I agree with, but it's a lot of like claptrap and unfunny garbage one of the <laughs> one of the really worst things i've seen in a very long time that made me like so angry because i know steven soderbergh is capable of great stuff and yeah. i'm just like what were what you doing a disappointment. here dude like what were you and doing all these, the star-studded cast a great director oh there's like, more uh, who else we got we got Chris Parnell and Will, Chris Arnell, David Will Forte, da- David Schwimmer, Sharon Stone. Yeah, yeah. What are you doing here? Like <laughs> Meryl Streep in two roles. Oh, oh my God. God. One white, Elena. one not. Wow, <laughs> God. God. Yeah. When we were watching, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Is that Meryl Streep? <laughs> that better it? not be Is Meryl Streep. Meryl, we, we had okay. to pause it and Jesus. investigate. So I do think Meryl Streep in Brownface is like oh, the headline that this movie gets. And, like, I think Gary Oldman is worse than her in Brownface. I would rather watch Meryl Streep in Brownface for 90 minutes than watch <laughs> 90 more seconds of Gary Oldman do that German accent. <laughs> and he's in a lot, like, Brittany was saying, he's in a lot of the movie. Oh, like, God, it's excruciating. I have worked my whole life. It's like a gnat that you're like, yeah, but it's so to bad. me, so we, I, I knew we all were going to hate this movie. Because it sucks. Okay. It sucks. I was but, scared that y'all would have liked it. <laughs> no, no, no. But what, <laughs> so I, what I was going to say, like the end of this movie, oh where God. Meryl Streep, you know, as I forget the character's name, but- The grandma. I think her name is Ellen. Or whatever. And then Elena. Elena. Yeah. And, you know, they're trying to figure out who leaked this information. And then she kind of reveals like, yes, it was the secretary. She leaked it and she's taking off, you know- the wig and the fake breasts and all this stuff. 
and there's like a green screen in the back. And then we just get Meryl Streep herself. She stripped all the characters. A multi-millionaire. Right. Yes. Right? Oh, sorry, yes. <laughs> and there is a funny joke in here where, you know, they say, oh, even the director of this movie has five shell companies. So there is kind of a cynicism like, yeah, this is just what you That's do. That's lost by this monologue at the end. Right. Yeah. But at the end, it's her making this plea to action. Like you, as a viewer, you need to act to change campaign finance. We need campaign finance reform, <laughs> which comes out of nowhere. Like, <laughs> What am I supposed to do? <laughs> right. right. You're the millionaire. You're the millionaire. <laughs> and then she gets in the pose of the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. And that is how the movie ends. And I was just so flat. I was flabbergasted. It's liberal bullshit at the highest degree. Yeah. At the yes. highest order. It is like, and again, I I think what came out in the Panama Papers, like it's disgusting what the rich do to hide their money. Yeah. And I agree with the message, but the tone of this thing and the like preachiness of it and the like hitting me over the head with the political message and the fact that it was so unfunny and boring, and I learned nothing. I was truly just disgusted with this movie. I think the message is actually, like, really smart. Like, not only does it have these big picture ideas that, like, corporations use these shell companies to hide their money in these, like, offshore accounts, and, like, they're not paying their full due in taxes, and, like, we get punished for it. We pay higher and higher taxes Mm -hmm. when, like, if they just paid their percentage of their billions that they make society would function properly that's like really solid political messaging there's also this like really good broad metaphor where like meryl streep goes in these hotel rooms and she's looking through this keyhole and there's this like club where we're not invited she's just like an everyday woman she's inherited a little bit of money after her husband died from the insurance but like she's looking in on this like higher society where she can't get into the room to have these conversations Mm -hmm. also very smart Even smarter and even like smaller minutia is this idea that like these companies are buying properties as bank accounts. And like if you live in an urban space like we do. We deal with that in New Orleans. There's so (laughs) much empty property and we're walking around in basically a fake ghost town unless there's something like the French Quarter Fest that's bringing in all of these tourists. Like we've been completely gutted by companies like Airbnb and also by like out-of-the-country investment um, holders who've basically bought up all these condos and these fake buildings that make us feel like we're living in downtown Disneyland instead of a real city. very bizarre. It's creepy. And I miss living in a neighborhood where I see people out and about on like a regular basis. I agree with this movie. Yeah. It's also the worst movie I've seen in a long time. (laughs) It's like excruciatingly bad. Did anybody see that film? I think it was Don't Look Up. Yeah. That came out. I got I, I got the stake of this movie on that movie and bailed. I like couldn't watch yeah. it. But the difference, and I think that one is pretty in your face, like with the climate change message, which again, a message I agree with. But at least that movie was kind of funny. It had a few scenes okay. that made me laugh. This movie had nothing. No jokes. No jokes. None of it landed. And like... It was so heavy handed that like I agree with Brandon with the political message. Totally agree with it. But I would have rathered just a straight up documentary about the Panama Papers and what the implication of that than what this film gave me. And another really bold, bad choice 
was having actual news footage at the end of the movie <laughs> from like, like Obama talking about the Panama Papers and like oh. CNN talking about the Panama Papers. Like, I think what's going on here, and this is like the most charitable reading I could possibly give this movie, is that Soderbergh has been working with HBO Max or whatever, whatever Warner Brothers production company, yeah. whatever subsidiary HBO is at this point. Who like, has its own shell company, like, I'm sure. And the five companies that are left in America, whichever one owns that one. Right. Like they've been giving him freedom within a certain budget to do whatever he wants. This one is outside of that. Uh, like the Netflix thing was like a one-time deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think what he's done here is... This is really charitable. <laughs> I think he's kind of like playing to what Netflix is, which is like it's a second screen platform where like you're not actually supposed to watch the content. You're supposed to watch your smartphone and listen to the content. Mm-hmm. So like when someone mentions a company or like uh, a news event, you're supposed to Google it on your phone because you're already scrolling Twitter anyway and kind of listening to what's happening. <laughs> and like the zaniness of the movie is like constantly being annoying and like pulling your attention back to the screen so that it can like shove another like uh Panama Papers factoid in your head so that you go back to your phone and Google that. Yeah. And I think he's like playing to the format of like second screen cinema. Like you're actually not actually supposed to watch this stuff. It's like listening to NPR while you're scrolling Twitter. You're supposed mm. to hear factoids in the background and learn things mm. tangentially but not actually engage with the content. And if you sit down with this movie and watch it straight on with no distractions it's um untenable it's like yeah, it's it's really difficult unbearable. to pay attention to yeah i just didn't understand how it all connected it's garbage yeah okay yeah that was like i'm like is there like some kind of cohesiveness to all this that i missed i was waiting yeah, for just one of the stories to like something. Land. i was hopeful when the like african like and with the cheating on yeah. his wife and the I was like okay this is setting up some sort of dramatic could be funny situ- and no like none yeah. of it landed like it's it, like the movie 43 of the yeah. big short genre oh, I forgot about right that. <laughs> so totally unrelated to like taxes and stuff but that like middle story of the african family um, I had just watched Poison Ivy with Drew Barrymore, and it was oh, so yeah. similar. I watched that. I watched that. Yeah, I've been watching all those Criterion Same. erotic thrillers. Yeah, like this is my month, the erotic thriller, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, Criterion, and it was it was so similar where it's like the friend sleeping yeah. with the dad, and of course Poison Ivy does it better, but I don't know. It it was just so strange where I'm like it just felt like unnecessary. Yeah, the only part I found funny about that was the like, all right, what's your price? Like two million dollars. Like pay off my daughter. I'm going to pay off my daughter <laughs> so to gross. not talk about. Like that is kind of a funny. It was at least engaging. For yeah, a that was like an engaging idea, mm-hmm. but just execution around the and it was oh man, just I don't know. Comparing it to the Big Short and to Don't Look Up, like the Big Short cared about representing that drama, mm-hmm. like realistically and seriously and then it had these kind of like cutaway asides with celebrities talking about you know like the mechanics of the bonds and whatever and it did feel like it was trying to teach you about things that people don't necessarily want you to know about it's like all of these details are important for your life and for like the broader context of this like the housing crisis Mm -hmm. um don't look up is like I felt like it was 
more cynical, but it was more cohesive and it did like it felt like this tighter narrative with all of these like planets of satire revolving around it. Right. The satire worked in that movie yeah. to some degree. The sat there is no right. satirical element to this that I can find. Yeah, the laundromat is it's like so disconnected. Like the vignettes really like break you out of digging into any particular story. Like Ellen is the thread throughout because she's trying to figure out what's happening. Um but so there's nothing narratively to dig into and it feels so cynical. But it's also like really really patronizing and didactic. Like I don't know. It made me feel hopeless. And then the ending is like, you're trying to instill me to action that I don't feel motivated. And and also, I, I don't feel like empowered to do anything. Like you've communicated to me that yeah. this is totally outside of my realm of action. Yeah. Like it the just I- didn't work at all. The idea is just like, it's way too complicated for you to even understand. There's nothing you can really do to change it because you're powerless. But at the very end, uh, we need to do something to change it. And like, Meryl yeah, right, Streep, uh, like changing from Elena to Ellen and then stripping away her stuff is like, I don't know, like a celebrity paragon of liberalism was like yeah. so infuriating. Like I love yes. Meryl Streep, but I was like, are you are you really gonna like stand here and talk to me? Lecture about- me. I was, right. I was <laughs> yeah. yes, anger at the end. I was yeah. pissed because I'm like, you made me sit through this shitty movie that I hated and now you want me to go and do something? And you want me to, like, have a task? Like, fuck off. Like, I'm so pissed. The thing right. is that, like, Soderbergh's good at this stuff generally, though. Like, he yeah. has a leftist <coughs> agenda in most movies he makes now where, like, he he delivers these, like, over-the-plate thrillers that are very recognizable in genre terms. Like, I'm thinking of No Sudden Move mm-hmm. was, like, a pretty good, like, noir throwback he made a couple years ago that had, like, this EPA environmentalist agenda to it. Uh, he also made High Flying Bird for Netflix around the time this came out. And that was about like uh, NBA owners were like screwing over their players like workers rights. He is a progressive filmmaker. Yeah. What was the one um, that was like really good? Unsane? Is that what it was called? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that was about like the medical industry basically milking insurance companies to the common citizens like detriment. Yeah. And like he gets those messages across while still entertaining people. And I think this particular genre just like aggravates me. Like he's playing with this like post big short pop economics explainer, which was already perfected in the eighties by a taxing woman. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know it's been done great before. I, and I, right, and that movie is actually entertaining. It's right. good. I have not seen. I haven't seen the big short, but there's been a wave of movies since then that have done the same style, and the only one I've seen it do it well was this South Indian action movie called Thuni Vu, which started as a bank heist thriller and then halfway through turns into a big short mm-hmm. uh, economics explainer. And like it gives you the genre goods and then pulls back to show you the bigger picture of how corporations are fucking over the average worker. And like this one does not give you the goods. It's just the pop ep- economics like bullshit mm-hmm. with like none of the sugar. And like it's just really not fun to sit through in like any way. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry I picked this one, guys. <laughs> now we know. No, I mean, it's know. a good yeah. example of like a tax movie that's agreeable politically. Right. Well, but, like, and not I will say it made watch. me yeah. like reading the Wikipedia and like articles about the Panama Papers 
after watching the movie was more interesting <laughs> and entertaining than the movie itself. That's the second screen quality. You were supposed to be doing that while you yeah. watched the movie. Yeah, shame I on, guess. Shame on us. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But I, I much prefer a taxing yeah. woman approach to oh, it. Yeah, yeah but, we watched a taxing woman after this. And I was just like, th- like this is what I wanted. <laughs> that Gordon yeah. Ramsay, yeah. like, finally some good fucking food. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think in the order we're going, we're going less and less about taxes yeah. as we like leave a taxing <laughs> we're woman about in to the laundromat. Totally, yeah. like, out this of- is, yeah. I mean, there's no spect. It's not a you know good decline. It's like. Very much about taxes, and then basically not about taxes. We're straight right. from the bullseye. Right. <laughs> We're hitting the uh, ballroom wall outside the bullseye on the target. Yeah, right. Yeah, so um, we're obviously talking about uh, Three Hearts, <laughs> which is the the movie that I picked. Um, this came out in 2014, directed by uh, Benoit Jacot. It is a French film, and <laughs> the um, the tax aspect of this movie is that we are following a middle-aged tax tax (laughs) inspector with a heart condition who if if somebody's like oh what does a tax inspector look like and act like it's this man just a super average dude milk toast (laughs) barely holding his body together (laughs) (laughs) so he um is in this sort of suburban town outside of Paris and has a meet cute moment with a younger woman, um, Sylvie. Yes. Um, played by Charlotte Gainsbourg, mm. who also has the same demeanor. Like she just looks, she always looks tired. Like I just want her to go take a nap and rejuvenate mm. um, her energy. And this is like an, I love her as an actress yeah, beautiful, and as a singer, but I'm like, oh, just go take a nap girl. <laughs> um, so they have this sort of meet cute moment and he leaves to go back to the city and they're like, oh, like, let's meet at 6 p.m. on this day at this location in Paris. We're not going to exchange numbers because <laughs> we're French and we're yeah. romantic. Why would they do that? Why would we why would we exchange <laughs> so, any contact information? Right, right. It's so, romantic. It's very like yeah. sleepless in Seattle. Serendipity. Yeah. So, uh, doesn't work out <laughs> as expected. Uh, she, she's there and he's being held up because he's a tax inspector. Dealing with people that Which, don't speak okay. French. <laughs> oh, that part sucks. Yeah. Yeah, that part suck. really sucks. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he's like, he has this meeting with these two Chinese men. Right. And they can't speak French. He can't speak Chinese. And he's like, well, it looks like I'm going to be here for a while. And it's like, why the fuck would you schedule, this, schedule meeting? this meeting? without right. an interpreter? There's no <laughs> world saying, where this is not a good business. No. Can we reschedule <laughs> with an interpreter? Right. Like, come also, back next. After watching, like, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which we decided not to talk about as, like, a main part of this topic. Yeah. But, like, yeah. It was like a racist 30-second so version oh, of that movie. Uh, yeah, totally. It was played for humor that they couldn't speak right. French. And it's like, there, isn't there a point where they're both like, who speaks French? And they're both like pointing at the right. other and guy. What's so, like, uh, what's so funny hilarious. is there's no other jokes in this movie no. to be found. Oh this God. is the only it's joke. Billed as, it's billed as a romantic comedy. No, it's not. <laughs> I swear to God. It's not. <laughs> Honestly, it's a thriller. It's yeah. a thriller. It's shot like a thriller. It's, yeah. And the music. The, yes, the, the score music. is a thriller. It's shot like a Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah. Yes. But the score does not match 
No, no it's it does. going on, which it, is that well, I think funny? It, Some parts, maybe. I think it does match. I think it does. I actually... It, I feel we, like we'll it's a little too it. aggressive. Like, it's a little too like... And it's... I yeah. think the tension and the drama gets there. I don't oh know. I don't, I don't like preempt your, your yeah, plot yeah, synopsis. Yeah. But but <laughs> I do. Okay. I, I this, think I will end up agreeing with right. Brandon. Okay. This fucking bit. tax auditor who does not know how to do his job clearly because you should have somebody who can speak the, <laughs> the language, language of your clients. Yeah. Frustrating. Before you meet the thriller with tension. Right. Like, <laughs> yes, you're that's, so bad at your job. God, that's the he's scary bad, part. Bad tax a bad auditor. Tax and he's a bad lover too, apparently. <laughs> um, so they miss each other, and then she goes back to her husband, who's a dud, and is like, "Oh no, I guess we're gonna move to Minneapolis now." <laughs> and they they go to Minneapolis from Paris to Minneapolis. Yeah. <laughs> not a not a good as someone who's familiar with Minneapolis. Oh, okay, it's, it's a nice place. But she's like, "Oh, it's such a it's big city. Still like, a downgrade." <laughs> yeah. Well. Sylvie and her sister Sophie, who Sophie is Chiara Mastrani, and which is her mom is Catherine Deneuve, and three powerhouse French actresses here. Yeah, and Catherine Deneuve is in the film as her mother, right? So Sophie and Sylvie have like this antique business, and so Sophie is, and they're very close. So Sophie's like kind of like sad that her sister's gone and not there. And he, uh, tax inspector Mark, I think his name is Mark, um, or he's so uh, boring. <laughs> <laughs> so boring. Three yeah. like amazing women and the least interesting man in the world. Yes. That's so, right. Like, right. you're going to fall in love with this like, guy right. after like hanging out with a couple of hours. He's barely alive. <laughs> <laughs> this is somewhat a commonality in a couple of French, in like a good bit of yeah. French films where you have these beautiful women who are like powerhouse actresses and there's just like dud of a dude. That's heterosexuality <laughs> in a nutshell, yeah. actually. It's like <laughs> goddesses walking the earth and then total duds on their arms. Right. <laughs> and I do think this actor is well known yeah. in France from what, but I don't know if he's like I'm a just leading saying, man type. He's not a rom-com guy. I don't want to preempt you either but there is a scene with sophie she falls in love with him after a very brief period and she's in the theater movie theater with her boyfriend and she's like i have to leave you i've met someone else and he and it's just like this guy is not the kind of guy that you leave your boyfriend for like a day after me i love that scene i think that's like an incredibly (laughs) tense scene yeah maybe it doesn't make sense in the larger drama (laughs) of the movie but like as a um, lifelong coward, <laughs> the uh, cowardly move of like breaking up with someone in the middle the of a movie, movie in public and then shushing the them when they try to talk back when you're like, I've fallen in love with another man. And he's like, but wait, what? How long have you known this guy? And he's like, shh, shh. People are trying to enjoy the movie. <laughs> That's a great, yeah. brilliant, like passive aggressive yeah. move right there. Are you crazy? Uh, Don't talk. So the boring tax guy is doing tax work with their antiques business and then they meet and they become romantically involved and I just I don't get the pull of this guy (laughs) but oh she is like head over heels and they get married and then um, if you're ever dating someone always look at their family pictures in the staircase (laughs) because that's what he does so he starts dating her and then he hears her talk to her sister Sylvie and he's like oh so he's starting to have like another heart attack he's had like 10 by now and then he starts to look at the family staircase of pictures and oh my god it's Sylvie so 
That's the three hearts. That's all three of them. And he mm. decides to marry her anyway so that he can like bring Sophie to the wedding from Minneapolis. And so be can... closer to her. Yeah. yeah. It's so sick. And then they have a child. Yeah. Ugh. And then they have this like, is it? Not, I don't, I didn't find it to be like a passionate love affair at all. I think all. it is. I don't know. I, think I it's just like, didn't pick up I think on it. what it's supposed to be is I think the tension be, between intense immediate attraction and like a fiery burning passion versus a slow simmering reliable romance yeah and I, that's what the two sisters are supposed to represent like i get it but that guy did He's not bringing nothing like right. i'm like how could anyone have like this passion that, inside of the them thing. for if, him if he was like richard gear or something right. right. i would get it yes if he was like any number <laughs> of leading man it. like I, I agree with Brittany. It was like, that guy? Right. Like, really? And then he's like, he walks slow, and then he has this like pot belly, this old man pot <laughs> and he belly. Has heart attacks <laughs> at random like, Heart attacks all the time. Yeah. And in the beginning, when he first meets Charlotte Gainsbourg, it's like supposed to be this before sunset situation where they like meet and they're wandering right. the streets together, but their conversation is just like not very interesting. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, Brandon. They're not they're three. Okay. I yeah. think this movie's pretty good. I don't think it's great. I think it's pretty good. Okay. But like their conversation is very mundane, and you're right about that. But like they recognize something in each other physically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I can tell you're like also hurt. Maybe he's not selling it as an actor. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I get the dramatic setup. You know, like yeah. there's something like about this drama. And, like, this love triangle that, like, actually works for me on the page, even if the actors aren't so yeah. selling the chemistry. I, I struggle with it tonally at first because, like you were saying, like, it felt like a romantic comedy situation, but removed of all romance or comedy. It's shot like someone's about to get murdered. Right. And it's, yes. shot, and it's shot like a David Fincher. And it's got, like... The soundtrack is very ominous. I'm like, like I thought okay. Charlotte Kingsburg was gonna pull out a gun at right. any moment. <laughs> so like, okay, this is actually kind of like a dark drama thriller. Right. And it does sort of reach that moment towards the end where they're like yeah. running off and they're like having sex on like the side of the highway. They're so <laughs> she's they're always like running away moment. from him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like that's where it started to click yeah. like what the tone of it actually was. I think it builds a lot of tension up to that point too. Like yeah, when he forces the reunion at the wedding, the camera keeps panning towards doors and hallways, like waiting for her to enter the scene. And like, there's a lot of whip pans throughout up until that moment, like looking for her and she's mm-hmm. not there. And there's a lot of like visual tension in the filmmaking. I get it. Um, And then also after they get together, and after that like Cronenberg crash fuck on the side of the highway, there's like a lot of shots over cliffs and over balconies where you feel like a character is gonna like not be able to take this tension anymore and like kill themselves. Nothing ever comes of that. No. But I can't say I wasn't like on the edge of my seat waiting for something like that. I kept thinking that somebody was going to commit suicide or do like a murder suicide. And that's just in the visuals. That's not in the the dialogue. I liked it. Yeah. I didn't hate it. I just don't think it did what it was trying to do. No. As well as it could have done. It's not a great. And it's a man. (laughs) I did. I like the tension in the scene where they're sitting across from each other having dinner and she's like avoiding eye contact. And there's like. 
then they finally make eye contact and like yeah, yeah. there's some electricity there yeah <laughs> i but i do i do want to push back a little like it doesn't work for me like it's a mess it's a mess because again it, the situation is a rom-com but it ain't funny except for the scene where it's trying to be funny with the Chinese... Oh, the racist scene. The racist scene. <laughs> the racist scene. It's like, okay, yes. you're trying to be a little funny, but not... Re- and it's like, not really sexy. It's dark, but nothing really happens. There's no... It's just like, it was a messy... There's narration movie. out of nowhere. Yes! yes. In, the the of the in the film. Hated that. <laughs> I love watching them, like, eat in silence. The plate with, like, it's like a leaf and then, like a little potato. Um, I will, I will say I can watch Catherine Deneuve, like walk around with a cigarette and say yeah. nothing for hours. That's like true. she so carried many, most of this movie. So many cigarettes and so much eating in this movie. Yeah. Great. Okay. This is comfort watching for me in a way where like every year at Britannia Uptown, there's the New Orleans French Film Fest. Yes. And I've taken y'all to some screenings there. And every year I go... Especially when I used to be um, a subscribing member to the New Orleans Film Society, which I've not been able to afford for a minute, but I want to get back to this. Where like you go to the festival and you want to fill your docket with stuff. So like any movie with a certain actress in it, and I'm want to name Charlotte Gainsbourg, mm-hmm. Marion Cotillard, yeah. uh, Catherine Deneuve, Isabelle Huppert, the recognizable French actresses. You will go see these movies with them. And the reason they get plugged into this film festival is because they need to fill out the docket. And like, we are used to French movies that are exported here being like up to a certain standard where they're supposed to be treated as art and like high Mm. art. And I don't think this movie is that. I think it's like a rung below that. And this is just a standard drama for adults. And like, if this was an American movie, it would get no recognition whatsoever would just like have like a week's worth of reviews and then be forgotten Mm. forever but because it's french it like kind of gets carried over here as if it's like smarter more sophisticated than it actually is i feel like it would be a made for tv lifetime movie yes it is yeah at that standard it's like it's fine entertaining enough to like justify itself i do i do agree with you though like when i go to watch a french film i expect it to be like very sensual very like philosophical smart and sexy and when you see one that's like pretty bad you i i think i judge it more harshly you're seeing like 0.5 percent of what that country produces like yeah most of their shit is stuff like this you know it's like festival fillers and then also like screwball comedies because they fucking love jerry lewis and like just (laughs) bullshit and most of it doesn't get here right but we see the stuff that's supposed to be treated seriously. So, like, if you hold this up to that standard, it's like, okay, this isn't very good. This is not a Claire Denis film. But, like, it's fine. Like, it's it's, 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 it's okay. It's, it's aight. The only reason it's, like, remarkable is that Hollywood studios actually don't make complicated dramas for adults like this on a regular basis the way French studios do. Yeah. That's the only distinction it has. Well, yeah. usually when we do, like, dark dramas, they're, like, pretty dark like have to do with like murder and and this is like dark but again nothing really there's no big like Mm. someone getting stabbed or some murder cover-up it's just kind of like emotions you should have fucked two sisters that's not cool that's real bad dude (laughs) never cool well there is a dramatic audit of the mayor oh yeah yeah. (laughs) which is like the linchpin of the uh tax 
like I don't want to call it a metaphor, but like the reason to bring taxes into it yeah. is yeah. the concept of cheating. Right. Like he uh finds something fishy in the mayor's finances, so he decides he's gonna investigate him. And they have these two scenes together where they're like very clearly connecting the audit to the personal um problems of the auditor. And the first one is like uh the mayor's like, why would I throw away a thing that I've worked uh, for so long for like I have so many yeah. good things why would I throw that all the way uh, all away and the auditor is like ah you know men have these reasons for doing this. so it's like you know throwing away this relationship that he's had for a long time for this like hot love affair and then the second time they're talking about cheating and like how like everybody will be held accountable for cheating so it's like it's mm-hmm. like his guilt is manifesting in this like audit of the mayor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like the concept, the way they've floated is like everybody cheats. Right. In taxes and in love. <laughs> and it's like that does not work, actually. The more you think about it, it's right. like actually no, both of y'all are scumbags. Yeah, and, like, I actually don't do either. So. Yeah, y'all are right. like villainous in two slightly so different ways. Check themselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They do use the taxes as like a dramatic tool, like um, he's in town doing an audit when he misses his bus mm-hmm. uh, to meet the first sister, and then he uh, he helps audit the second sister's taxes right. to get her business straight. Actually, that is the funniest part of the movie is, uh, you know, the second sister is very calm and, like, skittish and kind of mousy, and yeah. he's, like, looking at her books, and he's like, you're fucked. You're never going to get your head above water. <laughs> and she's, like, jail. devastated, and he's like, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was a terrible joke. I'm sorry. And you can see in her face that she's, like, completely wrecked by that. I gotta laugh out Maybe of Maybe he does have some charisma. Barely. Barely. Not <laughs> he really. has no uniqueness, nerve, or talent. Think, that's like, for sure. <laughs> if this guy, if it was like Jean Dujardin doing this, like, I mean, it would have been explosive. I'm just yeah. like, <laughs> I'm just like Charlotte, you can do better. Right. I have a question about the ending. I don't know if we can spoil this. Let's go for it. <laughs> Let's Whoa, do it. Just, watch this. <laughs> I just, okay. So when he's, so the ending is like, it all boils out, boils over like his affair is discovered, and the last scene is him in the park with this with Charlotte yes, Gainsbourg, where they should so, have met. Right. So is was that like a fantasy? I think it's like a sliding doors thing. Like if okay, he had shown is, up for the right, appointment, I thought he had a heart attack and then he died, I, and that was his heaven. Was, oh, what if I if I I, I made it on time? Okay. I I just took it as like. It Whoops. didn't work out. I'm going to give you like a final goodbye before you go b- bye to Oh, I took it as like a what if. Like yeah. if I had been at that at the um, garden at that meeting on time yeah. if I had not been a racist asshole. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think the real thing is like it doesn't even matter. Who cares? Like yeah. who cares? It doesn't change anything that it happened doesn't. before well, or make the film better. So th- I mean, it only matters in the initially I was like is this is this reality? Like, is this just hmm. after everything? Like, he's oh, able like to have... they went back and right. they, they're together. Yeah, and that oh. would. I mean, that would just. I I don't think that ending. That's not would, satisfying. No, that's not satisfying. No. Uh, any of the other endings that we <laughs> just discussed, yeah. right? And I think that is it. It makes sense because like there is a pretty dramatic shift in cinematography between that the second to last scene and the last thing it's like this gray blue and then colorful and yeah. but that i i do think it is like a fantasy or 
some other thing. It's not reality. That's the difference between the French version of this adult drama and the three-star American drama would not give you that open ending, like, in, right. like what do I interpret here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, even at the uh, mediocre romance thriller level, they yeah. still have to, like, put that little, like open-ended twist at the end you know? <laughs> we would have Ameri- an american movie would have punished him that is why i do love a lot of french films yeah. so i yeah. love the open-ended ending richard Gere would have met uh winona ryder's sister in the park with her kooky hats or whatever uh, <laughs> oh my god what was that november uh, autumn in new york, autumn in new york. Oh, autumn in god, new york. how dare you gorgeous okay here's why i'll also stand up for three hearts a little bit <laughs> i felt a lot of tension in the way the drama builds and like them introducing the characters and like how they're related and how complicated their relationships are, I felt a lot of tension there. I was not feeling that in Exotica, mm. which is a much better respected and beloved movie. And I feel like I'm already defensive about <laughs> <laughs> how uh, mediocre I found this film. Okay. What? Yes. Exotica, 1994, <laughs> on the Criterion channel right now. Not a part of their erotic thriller package, I don't think, but like should fit in there because it's a little classier. Uh, Adam mm-hmm. McGoyan, beloved in the 90s indie scene uh, in that post-Tarantino way where like after Tarantino and Todd Haynes and a few other filmmakers made these like big splashes at Sundance and these other film festivals, Adam McGoyan got in there and made big splashes with tiny budgets. This, I think, is his most beloved and resonating film. Yeah, I, I think not so. caught up with the other ones. I've been meaning to watch his movies for a long time, mm-hmm, and especially mm-hmm. this one. Uh, it's set in a strip club in Toronto that is impossible. <laughs> uh, it's like the coolest strip club ever. Yeah, it's yeah. a fantasy space. Yeah. Um, it's this big open area with these multiple stages. It's it's not even like that Shakespeare, like uh, all the world's a stage. It's like all the world is like multiple platform stages where like everyone's voyeuristically staring at each other from multiple levels. Yes, there's like uh, mermaids bathing and like women mm-hmm. dancing and then doing all kinds of performances. It's, it's yeah, and the DJ uh, poet who is um, emceeing <laughs> the uh, stripteaches also like goes backstage to watch lap dances up close from behind these two way mirrors where like he is framed in a woman's sexy silhouette, mm-hmm. but also staring directly at his ex girlfriend while she gives lap dances in a schoolgirl uniform, mm-hmm. and he gives these sort of like abstract poetic speeches about what is it about a schoolgirl's outfit that turns on <laughs> men so much i fucking hated this character uh he's played by casey jones from the teenage yes. ninja turtles movie uh and there's also a lot of like well, other crash oh sure he's in he that does as well the same thing as in crash there's a lot of canadian regulars in here don mckeller is yeah. in the film uh sarah polly yeah. is a teenager in the film yeah and she's phenomenal yeah the movie is split between i want to say three commercial spaces one is the fantasy strip club where exotic dancers are and the other is this pet store where exotic <laughs> animals are yeah are but not really but like, not really because right. most of the cages are empty <laughs> yeah. uh, and then there's this third space that's above a liquor store mm-hmm. uh where the tax auditor's brother lives um, and the tax auditor is the linchpin between these three spaces. Mm-hmm. He is frequenting the strip club as what seems like a potential mass shooter. Like he is just bringing <laughs> this intense energy into this fantasy space oh that people keep having to diffuse. And we're not sure why. Uh, and then he goes to audit this exotic pet store 
where Don McKellar runs a business he inherited illegally. He inherited it illegally, but he's illegally running it as a way to import um, exotic birds into Canada that should not be there. <laughs> uh, Don McKellar also, as a side project, likes to go to the ballet. Uh, he finds this like self-fulfilling ritual where he hits on men that are much hotter than him <laughs> by like, uh, selling them ballet tickets, staring at their crotches during the ballet and opera performances. And then when they get out being like, here's your money back. I got what I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of fun for a 90s erotic thriller to have this like gay side adventure. Yeah, it's like really interesting kink. Yeah, I love that stuff a lot. But the tax inspector is auditing his books and knows that he is basically hiding this like much more lucrative side business um, under the surface. Oh, I'm sorry. And also the liquor store is uh, where his brother, the tax auditor's brother lives. And he keeps picking up his uh, niece, niece from there yeah. to babysit, quote unquote, his empty house where his wife and daughter used to live. And uh, the wife and daughter, we learned fairly early, are dead. And we don't know how they died, but it was a sudden event that yeah. really wrecked this guy's life. This is what bothers me about this movie. And I'm sure y'all love it. I don't know. A lot of people love it. This is my least favorite dramatic template where the audience is kept in the dark about how all these people are connected and what they know about each other and how they relate into each other's lives. And it's revealed at the last second how all this stuff fits together. Mm -hmm. And that's kept as this like puzzle box mystery where it's like at the end you're supposed to be like, oh, this person knows that person because of this. And they had this history that we didn't know about because of this other thing that <laughs> yeah. happened. And it's like, why didn't you tell me that in the first 10 fucking minutes? But that wouldn't have been fun. Bullshit. <laughs> the whole movie keeps all of this stuff okay. hidden so that what you're actually watching is cryptic nonsense. People just say empty phrases about nothing. And, like, I don't have any way to care about any of these people so, until the last five minutes. So I would push back on that a little bit. Just in that, like, the filmmaker that this remind me of the most was Omadovar. I think in Omadovar's movie, he kind of does a similar thing. But the reveal, it deepens all these relate where you're like, oh, shit. Like, it's adding complexity to this story and the narrative. I actually tend to agree with you with this movie where, why would I rewatch it? Yeah. Like, that was my problem is like, how could I rewatch it? The fun of the movie. And I did have fun yeah. with it in the beginning was like, man, this is weird. Like all these different loose threads, like how does this connect? And then once I know the answer, I don't really feel the need to revisit it. And that is a problem for me. Like a great movie you should want to rewatch and get deeper meaning from it. And I do think Omadovar does the like soap opera, very complex relationship thing, mm -hmm. but it warrants repeat viewings because it deepens the understanding of these relationships. And I don't know if this movie pulls that same thing off. I also thought of Almodovar as the exact opposite of what this is, where it's like Almodovar slowly builds these relationships and they get more and more complicated. And like they build to an emotional crescendo where the audience has actually gone step by step to see how these lives are interconnected. And then when it gets to the emotional impact at the end, you're like, I can't believe he has subtly built this complex web where this person knows this person this way. And it's like all interconnected in this like really intricate, well thought out, well planned puzzle. Mm -hmm. But I've seen the puzzle being built yeah. and like I felt it 
And I can't believe we've gone this far with these few players. And like, this is the exact opposite where it's like hiding how all the pieces fit. And then when you actually see how they are connected, it's actually like nonsense and like, doesn't make any sense that we're like, if the movie was actually shown to you in a sequential linear order, there would be nothing to it. This is like a 30 second movie with a two hour runtime. It reminds me of this Ebert insult. I can't remember what director he was talking about. He's like, this director has seen other directors tilt the camera sideways and he thinks that's cool, but he doesn't know why they do it. And like, this is like, this guy has seen David Lynch's puzzle box movies and he's seen Tarantino's out of sequence dramas, but he doesn't know why they do that. He just thinks that's cool. And like, it has a cool vibe. It does have but a that's cool, it. It does have a cool vibe though, and I, it's got a '90s indie cinema vibe that is undeniably. It's cool. got. I give it a lot of points for just how strange and surreal some of this side, you know, outside of the central narrative, like just how weird and cool and the vibe of this movie. It gets points in my book for that. It's got ambiance. It's, it's got a Leonard Cohen strip club. Everybody <laughs> knows. Everybody knows. I like. I don't know if like it's just my experience with it, but it made me question like assumptions that I have, but I feel some of them are still valid. Like in the beginning, like I thought that guy was a pedophile. Like I think that was part of the implication. Yeah. yeah. Like you're, there's something about the schoolgirl thing and I'm like, and he keeps uh, giving Sarah Polly money, but we don't really see what I, their right. Like interactions I thought that are. I thought he was like, right. Giving her money. Cause he was like having sex with her or something like that. And then, he ha- he was getting his rocks off. Like I kept like, was he going into the stall to whack off? I think he was going in the stall to remember his daughter's right. death. So that's what I thought. I thought like, oh, he's going in there to whack off, and he's like, I'm gonna protect you, and that's his thing. And I'm like, oh, this is gross. But then like, the more it starts to unravel, I was like, holy shit! Like I had this assumptions of this man, but he was just like losing his mind because his fucking family like die and his kid got uh kidnapped and murdered and that's the babysitter and then he had that that thing at the end i don't know it was just kind of like a oh that's how i felt have empathy yeah. Brittany. two hours of like tension and they're like huh yeah it, it was one of those things where like by the end you're like i think mark commode had this criticism recently where it was like yeah you went with that one like it could have been Oh, this? with Don't Worry Darling? With Don't Worry Darling. It was like... Oh, you have like three templates of where that story could have right, gone. Right, it's you like, oh, you picked that B one. B instead of A or C. Yeah, it's like, that. that's a good one to go. And that's yeah. sort of how this felt like, oh, yeah, I see what... And it's that one. And he didn't you know, shoot anyone at the end either. I think it could have been... Like, I really 100% thought and he was going to I did shoot. like that moment of yeah. empathy that diffusion between... That is yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was cool. Like, there was some genuine connect... Like, I liked his conversation with polly in the car about like if you didn't ask to be boring like who's gonna ask you actually i hate that you hated that (laughs) really i like that like it's cryptic nonsense and that's like 90 percent of the dialogue in the movie it's like just people pontificating about absolutely nothing but that reminded me conversations are i don't know i like a lot of like it was like philosophy jargon stuff. Like I know you. I'm so bored i know you hate that i like that stuff where it's like yeah who who is asking me to stay alive but anyway it was fun to me it was like all it was cool vibes like yeah but i do agree with your central 
your central argument. It's valid, Brandon. So I have seen this movie twice. <laughs> and <laughs> so I would I would say okay, so this movie reminds me of Alps, which is by Yorgos Lanthimos. And not like aesthetically or in terms of like plot revelations, but in the the mechanisms of transactional relationships and like how important those become when you lose interpersonal relationships Mm -hmm. and so beyond exotica being this like i it's like it is absolutely beautiful like the spaces in this film are incredible i love the strip club i love how like deeply fantastical the the theme of the strip club is Mm -hmm. but like i didn't really care that much about what his like what the central mystery was like i was so interested in all of these little relationships that are formed by people that are like essentially in pain like this lonely guy who has this like decrepit ass pet shop (laughs) like kind of like buying a few hours of time with men men that are way out of his league that uh second indigenous man that he takes out is like the hottest person i've ever seen on screen (laughs) yeah 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 and his relationship with the babysitter like that reminded me a lot of alps like the idea that you have this young girl that you see on a regular basis to like i think she would used to like teach his daughter piano or would just babysit him and it's like I have this ritual with you, but it only means it it has one meaning in the context of my life. And now my life is gone Mm -hmm. and I like have to maintain that. And I have the resources to maintain that. And like how that changes the relationship in a way that's like really uncomfortable for her. Like I'm so interested in the relationships that you buy with people and what those mean and how that meaning changes over time. So like the vibe of Exotica plus those like little relationships are the, like, that's what I really like about this film. Well, and and like you said, it's all transactional and you could take it, like you said, it's like a puzzle box. Like, Ooh, I need to figure out what these relationships are and what they mean. We don't know what the transactions are is what my problem is. And I guess the reveal is you understand what the transactions are, but I don't know if that's really the heart. I think what Hannah's getting at is maybe more the heart of what he was going for, not the puzzle box aspect. I think it's supposed to be a pretty big, like emotional reveal when you watch like the babysitter go. But home the la- the, the last scene did, you know, is obviously revealing the ultimate answer to the film so that does mean something yeah i i I don't know it was probably supposed to be like a gut punch it didn't feel that way watching it the first time or the second time um but i think there was just like enough other little relationships for me to like latch on to that i was interested in like i was also interested in uh the dj's relationship with the like um, the strip club owner, like she's contracted with him to have a baby. Like I wish that right. they had explored that more, you know. And then she like, was interesting. Yeah, she had horrible wigs. Though. Uh, married <laughs> to the director too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she has a real Isabella Rossellini. Totally, yes. Yes. totally. Yes. I 
found her character and Sarah Polly's character to be the only relatable people in this entire picture. Where like, anytime someone any- says anything cryptic or like like nonsensical, they're like, "What are you talking about? <laughs> Can someone explain to me what's going on here?" Yeah. And I'm like, "Thank God someone's saying that out loud because <laughs> that's how I felt the entire time." Yeah, I do think you're right about the transactional rituals. In that, like, even the way that taxes and tax audits are, right. like, leveraged in this film, it's, like, weaponized in yeah. a way mm-hmm. that maybe I can't think off the top of my head that any of these other ones are, where, like, he uses his power as a tax auditor. <laughs> to get him to help commit murder. Yeah, <laughs> to get this guy to, it's like, lure unethical. out his enemy yeah. into a parking lot so he can shoot him. That's not ultimately what happens, but, like, it, it is a transactional relationship that's, like, tax auditor versus, like, someone being audited. Yeah. And then there's the moment where, so the auditor is kicked out of this club because the DJ convinces him to touch um, the dancer that he comes in to see. And there is a line that like really grossed me out where they're asking him about why he does it. And he was like, I would be disappointed if she did because she wasn't raised that way. Like that, that was shitty. Anyway, so he bribes this guy or blackmails this guy into going into the club and asking her why she thought he had touched her. So he's being blackmailed to go in and talk to this woman. Mm -hmm. And she's treating him like a client because that is what he's presenting as. And then he's asking her these questions about her relationship with this man. And at first she's like, why are you like, you're paying $5 an hour to, or you know, five whatever amount of time like '90s money, you know, five dollars, <laughs> yeah, but still, but even in that, yeah. like, that would have been like twelve bucks in '90s money. That's, That's so cheap right. for a strip club. Yeah, yeah, and she's like, like she kind of doesn't believe that he's here to. So, so everything about this interaction is contrived on both ends, and then she starts talking to him, and it. I don't think that she's a great actress necessarily, but in this scene, I did feel like a genuine kind of vulnerability that she doesn't have with anybody else. And like, even that was interesting, like Mm -hmm. the way that a transactional relationship can be turned into something else just because you are two humans. And then Mm -hmm. it's still like, I, I can't remember if she, he does end up paying her or like, I think he, she tries to like people keep trying to refuse money from other people i don't know i mean i just felt like like money changes the way that we relate to each other so much and it muddies so much of our interactions like i don't know i i do think that there were some really cool moments like that in the film i don't want to say that i didn't enjoy the movie (laughs) i think it's pretty good it's just like a plot structure that I tend to buck against every single time it comes up. Yeah. And even in that scene, I think like proves my point, which is like part of the tension of that scene is that we know he is gay and has no sexual interest in her. And that is context to their relationship. We know why he's there. We know what he's trying to get out of her for someone else's benefit. Mm -hmm. We don't know what her relationship is to this other person, but like there is a lot of context that creates tension there. And like, a lot of the lead up to that scene, I don't know why people have this tension. So I don't know why I should care what their issues are with each other. Yeah. So I, I have a quick question, though, because we were talking about Ennis Main at the very beginning of this episode, mm-hmm. which, again, we were talking about like it presents as like a puzzle box. But then you realize like there is no puzzle 
to solve. And like I think David Lynch's movies. That's what that's what um, I thought this was like more pulling from. Yeah, do that too. Uh, would you have preferred if none of this was yes. answered? Yeah. If if you have an answer to these questions, I'm an adult. I can deal with the consequences, and I would rather watch these characters deal with their messy shit in clear, concrete terms than you hide that information from me. Yeah. That's what Almodovar does so well. Like, we have to sit through these tensions. We have to see these people deal with these complicated relationships. And, like, the more complicated it gets, the more impressive it is that he, like, wove these intricate webs. And, like, if there is an answer, tell me up front. I'd rather sit in the tension. Or just don't tell me at all. If there is no answer, that's fine. But, like, if you're going to withhold that to the last second and that's the... Oh, that was what was going on. How was I supposed to know that? It's not a murder mystery. You're just like pulling information and obscuring shit for no reason. And like, if you told me that up front and there's no tension, that's a problem with the movie and not a problem with me and my understanding. I don't know. Yeah. I'm frustrated with this plot structure. I think it was a lot cooler maybe back in the 90s and 2000s and maybe early 2010s where like there were a lot of uh, Ebert called it hyper connectivity movies. I called it everything is connected films where like there are 30 different characters are all in- right. intricately like and connected. Crash. Exactly like Crash. Me and you and everyone we know is one I was thinking yeah. of as well. Oh, Crash is an egregious example where it's, yeah, it's like- It's a bad movie. Oh yeah, he tried to rape her like, and we get that reveal at the very end of the film. This is a better movie than Crash. I'm not- <laughs> well, yeah, 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 of course, of course. But I, I, I get your point. Yeah, I just, I think this movie was a more novel- experience back when that was like a new concept and like by now it's like i'm already fed up with that being run into the dirt that like i can't go back and like feel (laughs) wonder watching these like how are these people connected like Mm -hmm. i've I've already gone through this mentally i wish i had seen this in the 90s as a teenager i would have loved it yeah (laughs) i still admired it for its surrealism and its yeah and its humor It, it had some very funny little moments too it's fine. I don't know. I, I just came in defensive and like the difference between this and Three Hearts is like Three Hearts is a movie nobody cares about and this is a movie that people love and like I think they're equally okay. Yeah. <laughs> but like I'm coming in like uh, a little harsher on this one. A, ta- a taxing woman. That's the of, gem. Yeah. Of all the, the movies we that's watch it. about taxes, that's it. Just a bureaucrat good at their job and loves what they do. It's the best movie and it's the most... Maybe not the most about taxes, but it's it's equally about taxes as the laundromat, and it's way better well, than the oh laundromat. The laundromat is the most about taxes yeah. and the worst, the worst. by a mile. Would yeah. you rather eat a bowl of ice cream or a bowl of dog shit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think Exotica is definitely the least about taxes, right? Like, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> There's yeah. like an absurdity in like his job being so bureaucratic when he's in this like libertine setting you know but like other than that there's really nothing else going on there. well i also i do like the scene where he arrives at the pet shop and it's like so poorly like organized and like all of the they're just like dead fish there used to be a pets an aquarium slash bookshop on metairie road years ago i remember this place and it was like that except there were also a bunch of old books and then they were selling probably exotic do you think uh, they were selling fish and shit (laughs) no there were exotic fish and there were a bunch of like really dark dirty tanks that you could there was something in it but you couldn't see it Um, but yeah, they had exotic fish. And then someone audited their ass. And that's why they're not there, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, next episode on the podcast, I'm making uh, 
Allie and Boomer watched this movie, Kamikaze Hearts, that I bought in San Francisco on Blu-ray uh, in the queer section in the DVDs, thinking like, this will never be commercially available to stream because it is too raunchy. Uh, and then it popped up on Criterion Channel. I know nothing else about this movie. Cool. <laughs> I know that uh, a good blind buy. Yeah, I bought a few movies like that out there. I'm like, this is basically like the edge between pornography and mm-hmm. like regular cinema. No way this will be streaming and available to the general public. And I was wrong immediately. So, <laughs> well, you know, it's probably gonna go away at some point. It yeah, always happens. So watch Kamikaze Hearts before it leaves Criterion Channel, uh, and you know before we talk about it next week. Kind of a Harsh shift between taxes and porn. But we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> taxes and porn. <laughs> Keeps the world going. Well, I, I would say a taxing woman does have a little bit of like a connection to, between those yeah. two. So. That's why it's great. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>